Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm your host, Paul Neifer, and today we're going to welcome in a farmer that actually doesn't farm corn or soybeans or wheat. Uh, he actually is a part of a family operation that uh, farms vegetables and so on, and that's Edgar Terry from uh, Southern California. How's the, how's the weather down there, Edgar? Well, good morning, Paul. The weather's great. It's beautiful. Clear skies here in Ventura, California, and uh, expecting temperatures to be in the low 80s today. Yeah, we're uh, we're not going to be quite that warm. I think we're going to top out about six, between 65 and 70. But uh, as I look out my uh, window right now, we got bright, beautiful sunshine. My, my pond is nice and clear. So uh, I think we're going to have a pretty nice day too. My wife's favorite time of year is spring. My favorite time is fall. Um, you know, I, I could skip summer when it hits 105, 110. That's not my favorite time of year. Uh, no, that that's a little bit too warm. We we touch that once in a while, but not too often. Well, you're f- how far away from the ocean are you as far as where your farm is is or your main headquarters is located at? Well, um, so my office. We'll start with my office. It's on the very west side of town. As the crow flies, it's probably only uh, two miles from the beach. We can you know uh, you can see the ocean. Um, but our farms are spread out all over the county. Uh, we lease a lot of ground and own some, uh, and we're just we're spread out from oh gosh, the west side all the way to the very east side of the county. Okay, okay. So when you're on the west side, you're going to have that moderation from the ocean. But when you get to that far east side, and I've been on the far east side of Ventura in the summertime, it can get pretty hot over there. Yeah, no, it, it does. Uh, and, you know, during the summer, uh, you probably all heard the phrase May gray and June gloom. So summertime, we we get the fog rolling in off the ocean, which uh, uh, it gets, you know, it gets a little bit boring once in a while, but it also is very helpful for the crops we grow here during the summertime. Uh, fall and, and winter, we don't get the fog uh, and the, the weather is very temperate. It's very Mediterranean here. Uh, along the coast, probably inland for about uh, 10 miles. But then you're right, when you get to the very east side of the uh, county, um, it's a whole different uh, microclimate out there and it can it can shoot up as you get closer out to uh, I-5, uh, New Hall area, it could be 110. And then at the beach, it could be 60 degrees. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, saying I've heard multiple times uh, describing the weather in uh, San Francisco. I think somebody said the coldest they've ever been is summer in San Francisco. So, uh, you know, I, I, and I think there's some validity to that because you get that cold, but then you also get the wetness on top of it. So that, uh, that definitely, I'd rather have dry and zero than wet in 30. You know, that's, that's the way I am, at least up in my area. Yeah, no, it, uh, it, well, you know, the thing is here during the, uh, Summertime, when you do get the fog, a lot of folks from the San Joaquin Valley will come over because it'll be 110 there and they'll come over and spend some time along the beach and cool down on the weekends. And so we get a lot of folks uh, that come over to Santa Barbara and Ventura for the weekends during the summertime. Uh, wintertime, not so much. You know, it's it's moderate over on that side of the, the hill and over on our side, it's, it's moderate as well. So there's not much of a a difference in uh, temperature, but uh, you know it's, it's beautiful along the coast to be able to look at the ocean every day. There's no doubt. 
Yeah, yeah. And then um, let's go ahead and get started with uh, your background. I assume that you grew up in that area, but let's let's go over your background and then let's uh, dive into uh, the farm operation. Sure. So um, to go way back, my great grandparents immigrated down to Ventura in 1894 and started farming. Uh, both sides of the family, my mom's and dad uh, side, uh, were both farmers. Uh, so we've been farming. I'm fourth generation here in California. My son and daughter, the fifth, they've they've uh, uh, they're both on the uh, uh, working on the farm as well. Um, my background is I went to public school here in Ventura uh, uh, County, and uh, I went to college at Cal Lutheran University up in Thousand Oaks, California. Got my uh, bachelor's and my MBA there in, in business management. And uh, in fact, I, I'm an adjunct uh, professor there as well for the last 33 years teaching corporate finance. Um, and uh, then also I've, uh, uh, other things I've done here, I've also been uh, the ch uh, chair of the Ventura County Farm Bureau. Uh, my dad was a chair, my son just finished up being chair. So this is the first time any families have three generations of, uh, of family members to be chair of the uh, Farm Bureau here in Ventura County, which we're very mm -hmm. proud of. And um, then also I'm involved with uh, other boards, uh, extracurricular activities outside of farming. And and uh, I try to keep myself really busy with um, all kinds of different uh, aspects of business. Now, you went to Cal Lutheran in Thousand Oaks. That sounds like that wasn't a long commute. Do I have that right? My 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 geography is I think that's within 20, 30 miles. Do I have that right? Yep, it's about 22 miles from where I, I grew up and uh, uh, up in Thousand Oaks. Thousand Oaks is a beautiful location and uh, a lot of people might have heard from uh, about Cal Lutheran. It's uh, currently it's where the uh, the Rams have their uh, training facility. And before that, back in the day when I was there, the Dallas Cowboys had their training facility there as well. So it's a beautiful, picturesque little campus, about 2000 student undergraduate students and about two or three thousand graduate students. And uh, it's just a, a nice location, and I wanted to play football a little bit longer after I got out of high school, so I, I played for three years in college. I didn't play my senior year, but I did track all four years. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, my uh, my two oldest sons, they went to Azusa Pacific, which would uh -huh. be about 50 miles east of uh, of Thousand Oaks, or maybe 40 miles, something like that. Uh, you, you get down in the L.A. Basin, and it just goes on forever. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's interesting when you fly into the L.A. Basin that it starts about Palm Springs and ends up in Santa Monica. It's a really uh, uh, nonstop housing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I guess maybe when you were very, very young out in that Thousand Oaks area, was there still quite a few orchards there or, or were they pretty much gone by then? About the mid 70s is when the development really started. My sister went there in the late 60s and it was still very rural up in, in Thousand Oaks. There was still a lot of uh, open pasture land, uh, uh, trees, and uh, there wasn't a lot of development. The freeway was still very, you know, wasn't a big four lane, six lane freeway, whatever it is. It was, I think, a two lane freeway. And so it was still a very rural area. Uh, it, it was a area that uh, uh, our college uh, football coach said the most money that the original people that donated the land for the college, um, the most money they ever made in their career was when they burned the wheat for the movie, The Good Earth. It was just dry <laughs> land farming up there, very hilly and uh, very rural. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
it's not that anymore. I can, no. I can, yeah, it's been, yeah, and, and actually my, my daughter-in-law's parents lived down by LAX and then my uh, two older sons, actually my number three son right now lives down in Irvine. So I've spent more time, you know, in the Southern part of the LA basin versus the Northern part, but I know it's just one big city these days. Yeah. Both of my uh, kids went to Loyola Marymount down in West LA and and uh, yeah, that whole LAX corridor down there is just, it's exploded in growth too over the last 20, 25 years. A lot more industry has moved in down there. On the, uh, I think they call it Silicon Beach down in that area now. Yep, yep. So that's that's a little bit of your background. How about the uh, the actual farm? Um, what, what do you grow? Uh, where are you located? I think we maybe have heard that a little bit already, but uh, let's, let's just dig into those details a little bit more. Sure. So uh, we farm about 2,000 crop acres a year here in the county uh, during the, well, all year long. Our, our biggest crop in acres is cilantro, of all things. We grow, uh, gosh, close to 1,000 acres of cilantro a year. And cilantro is one of those crops. It's a very short crop, so you can you can rotate the ground, you know, three times a year on the same acre. We grow a lot of celery. We grow a little bit of cabbage, a little bit of romaine lettuce. Uh, we, uh, uh, during the uh, summertime, we grow lots and lots of different types of peppers, bell peppers, Anaheim uh, chilies and pimientos. Um, and most of those are for the processed uh, foods industry, canned and jarred and things like that, fire roasted. And uh, uh, th those are our main crops. You know, then every once in a while we'll grow a one-off crop you know, a few years ago, we, we grew some Brussels sprouts for somebody. And and uh, once we used to grow a lot of lettuces around here, but the lettuces have moved out to lower cost areas. But uh, once in a while, we'll we'll pick up a head lettuce crop if somebody needs it. We our our business model is we. I like to say we're we're too big to be small and too small to be big. So <laughs> we we produce uh, products for larger grower packer shippers that have a need for something. And so we contract with them and uh, grow whatever they want us to grow. And uh, it's, uh, gosh, been our model probably for the last 25, 30 years. And and the crops have changed over that time. And I, I like to say, you know, as a farmer, you you tend to reinvent yourself about every year and a half. So yep. uh, we never want to ever be stuck in the mud doing one thing. Now, you know, in a lot of our uh, podcasts have been with, uh, let's say, a corn and soybean grower from the Midwest, and there they might only do one, well, one season of crops. You know, you plant corn and soybeans in maybe April, May, potentially, I guess, if you're far enough south in March, and then you harvest it in August, September, October, November, depending on where you're at in the in the season. But in your area, how many how many cycles of crops could you get in in a 12-month period? Yeah, so the, so I said we farm about 2,000 crop acres, and that's on about 900 acres of land. So you take the 2,000 divided by 900, and you got a little over two rotations per year per acre. Um, we we grow a few acres of strawberries. We used to be bigger strawberry growers. We moved out of that space and we we're, we we just grow about three and a half acres of strawberries for a very specialized uh, uh, a group of people be, besides ourselves having a fruit stand we grow some strawberries for some people out in the inland empire out by azusa pacific as a matter of fact um, and strawberries you grow one crop on an acre per year because it's a long crop um, 
and a cilantro crop, as I said before, you can grow, gosh, in a perfect world, you could probably rotate that three and a half to four times per year on the same acre. So um, given that we have very high land and rental costs here, you want to be as, as intensive as you can with the, uh, the crops you grow. You want to constantly be turning that ground over and never leave the ground idle because the ground is so valuable. Yeah, and then on, on those crops, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't do cilantro after cilantro after cilantro. Are you then mixing in some of your other vegetables just to get that, uh, keep the disease down and, and so on? Or, or how, how, do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, uh, that's true. We, we do try to rotate crops um, if possible. Again, it's dependent upon the microclimate, but uh, you'll grow a cilantro crop maybe after that you would grow a cabbage crop or, but if, if, if there's a big demand for cilantro and right now every, I mean, it's, I think cilantro has become the new avocado toast because there's a huge demand for cilantro. Yep. And, and um, so sometimes we'll, we'll grow two cilantro crops in a row. That's not the preferred thing to do, but sometimes we're forced into it. And so we, we just have to make sure that we do a good job with uh, ground preparation and all the things that go into keeping the soil healthy um when we do things like that and uh, uh but yeah it, it, sometimes you you will have to rotate the same crop we we certainly do not try to rotate a celery on celery crop at all um, if we have a celery crop we're going to come back with something else after that uh, because that's just too hard on the soil yeah now i'm guessing you're having labor issues like everybody else is or how 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 yeah, what is your labor situation right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And and labor is tough. It's tough everywhere. What we've done, I guess it's been six years, seven years ago, we formed a, a labor company. So a little bit of background how we're set up. We have the farming entity, then we have a back office entity, and then we also have a farm labor contracting entity, which my daughter heads up. And uh, the farm labor contracting entity was put together specifically to be able to have our own uh, base of people uh, that, you know, we're, we, have a, we have a certain denominator of people we need to have year round to make, you know, to make everything work. And, and then throughout the year, we're like, when we're harvesting peppers during the summertime, we'll ramp up that labor base, say from 50 people to 150 people uh, to be able to harvest our peppers. Uh, if, we get behind, then we'll go to an outside labor contractor to help us. But generally, we want to we want to keep our own labor force uh, intact throughout the year. And um, to do that, we you know we offer 401k, we have health insurance, we have all kinds of things that we'll offer workers that you know uh, enjoy those types of benefits just to keep a a common base of people uh, with us. And you know, thankfully, we've got a we've got a group of folks that uh, stay with us year round. And it, it helps it helps uh, mitigate those ebbs and flows of, of people coming and going. And then unlike, let's say, a, a, a farmer in the Midwest that probably has a person that they pay a salary or maybe they pay, they might pay some overtime, uh, but at a time rate, you know, not time and a half. I know California, just like Washington State and I think Oregon is going to be doing the same, is now requiring overtime, you know, time and a half. Where, where are you at in that process? Is, is California fully at that time and a half or, or where are they at right now? Yeah, for the most part, Paul, they are. Uh, it depends on how many employees you have. But uh, yeah, we're at a 40 hour work week. Uh, and so it's overtime after eight hours a day or the 40 hour week. 
and that was a change because when I first started my career, irrigators could work up to 10 hours a day before overtime, or excuse me, irrigators were unlimited, um, yeah. and tractor drivers were 10 hours a day, and you didn't pay overtime till the seventh day. Well, it slowly worked its way down, and now it's eight hours a day for everybody. Nobody is exempt from overtime and a 40-hour work week, which is very challenging because, as you know, the, the crop doesn't stop growing. So no, irrigators no. irrigators put in a lot of hours, but we, we, you know, trying to be more creative with it. The minimum wage here now is $15 an hour. Uh, really, nobody earns 15. Most people are earning above 15. And when you factor in overtime and the, the cost of labor, uh, the cost of labor now is approaching the high 20s. Uh, yep. For the average worker, so it's it's very expensive, and and unfortunately, the the amount of we track our labor hours per acre for each crop, and uh, it hasn't it hasn't budged much, you know, historically, yeah. and, and, and and not sure not sure where we head from here, but its minimum wage keeps going up. So on your crops, uh, I'm guessing like with your peppers, those are all hand harvested. What what's your mix of hand versus machine harvest? Uh, basically, everything's 100% hand harvested for the perishable commodity market. Um, there's, you know, there's really no magic machine out here that can harvest the crop and put it in a box. So, uh, gosh, I can't think of anything that really isn't hand harvested at, at some point along the the, uh, the chain. You know, the, there are some cilantro and spinach that we grow that they'll bring a machine in to cut it. It goes into a tote and goes into a packing shed where it's uh, sorted and, and bagged. You know, maybe there's less people along that line to get it into a bag. But for the most part, human hands are going to touch it somewhere along the line. Yeah. And then uh, also in your labor, again, in the Midwest, they're going to pay an hourly rate. But I'm guessing you probably have some piece rate uh, type labor or, or do you? Yeah, we do. Uh, strawberry harvesting, for example, once you get into full production, those uh, those folks are working on a piece rate, so much a flat, uh, uh, you know, whatever the going rate is in the area to attract people to come and harvest. Celery harvesting is all piece rate, so much a, well, the, the crew splits it up at the end of the day. It's so much per box, for instance, but it's it's split out at the end of the end of the day by the crew. Um, uh, most of the vegetable crops, cabbage, lettuces, they're all piece rate as well. Cilantro is piece rate. And uh, it uh, it's just all kinds of different programs out there to whatever the market will bear. Yeah. And now in our state, Washington State, oh, I would say four years ago, three, four years ago, there was a lawsuit that was finally settled that when you're paying a worker piece rate, you also then have to, on top of it, you have to pay them for rest periods. So if they take a 15 minute rest period every, let's say every three hours, you have to actually pay them even though under the piece rate, they're well above minimum wage. I mean, they're like you're saying that 20, $25 per hour, but on top of you have to pay that. Does California have the same provision or as long as they're making at least minimum wage, you don't have to then compensate them for the rest period? No, we we were, that that same lawsuit happened here about four or five years ago. I think it was AB 1513, and when it came into being, our labor commissioner made it retroactive for four years before it ever came into law. So all thank gosh for technology because all of us had to do a look back and yeah. calculate what the uh, 
what the rest and recovery, we call it rest and recovery time and what it costs. And, it, you know, I, I had friends where they had to pay out millions of dollars. Thankfully, we didn't. Ours was uh, low six figures, but it, it was still a hit to the bottom line. And uh, th thankfully, we had technology to be able to do that. The people that didn't, they had to guess at it. But we were able to actually look back through our uh, our uh, uh, hourly uh, uh, electronic accumulation methodology of doing a look back, having a programmer come in and actually give us a hard number. But no, it 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 um, it, it was a big hit to a lot of the growers here in California. And uh, subsequent to that, all of our check stubs, uh, being given that we're also a labor contractor, our check stubs, we call out the rest and recovery time on the check stub specifically. And also on the check stubs, our workers, you have to put the address of where they were working uh, during the day. And so the, the check stubs uh, have turned into war and peace, <laughs> many pages long. And that's yeah. just what California requires now. It's just something you have to do. Yeah. So, uh, do you pay weekly, biweekly? How often do you pay? Yeah. The labor contracting uh, employees they get paid every week, and the management staff they get paid every two weeks. Yeah, I could see on uh, somebody that's in 17 different fields in that one week period. Yeah, if you have to list the field and the address and so on, uh, that could get uh, like you say that could be a novel. It it is. It's it's very cumbersome, and I don't know how we would do it without the technology that's come along to uh, to capture the time of the worker. Uh, it, it's I, our payroll lady is just uh, wonderful at doing it, but it it's it's a struggle. It's a lot of work to be able to capture all of that. Yeah. No, I I, I can definitely believe that. So, um, well. You had mentioned that you're the fourth generation. I'm I'm guessing maybe you have some kids that are uh, going to become the fifth generation, uh, uh, or maybe there's possibly a sixth generation coming up. Uh, let's uh, let's dive a little bit into that. So sure, uh, my wife and I have a son and daughter. Uh, the son runs the day-to-day -day activities of the farm, um, and uh, uh, he's in charge of the farm uh, operations and. Uh, crop planning and and uh, my daughter is the head of our labor company. Uh, she's a bilingual. Uh, she was a Spanish major in college, so that be, that was very helpful for her. And so she takes care of the labor company. Uh, my wife uh, is uh, in our back office entity with our other folks, and she takes care of all benefits and compliance activities. She was an accounting major in college, so very detailed individual and and it's uh one of those one of those things to keep keep up on not not only the spirit of the law but the letter of the law we follow yeah. the letter of the law we don't we don't deviate with the law says do x we do x we don't we don't do half of x uh and then i'm um i'm on the farming side well i kind of oversee all of it but uh, i tend to take care of more of the finance activities and uh those type of things now instead of doing the day-to-day -day farming one well, and you had mentioned that you're an adjunct professor at at uh, the university. Uh, how did that come about? <laughs> Funny story. So back in uh, 1987, my old economics professor came to me. I, my wife had been married for about a year and a half, and my old economics professor came to me and said, "Hey Ed, um, I think you ought to teach." 
And I said, uh, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't have a PhD. And he goes, no, no, no. I think you, I think you ought to teach, think about it. And we've got a position open as an adjunct. And I think, I think you'd enjoy it. And so I thought about it, talked to my wife about it. And her, her father was a uh, professor of Old Testament at the Claremont Graduate University and uh, Duke University before that. So, you know, she said her dad really enjoyed teaching. And, and so I, I started doing it. And, you know, 30 some years later, I'm still doing it. And I do about, oh, gosh, two to three classes a year. They're all night. And um, I just really enjoy it. And I, I do finance, corporate finance. Yeah. Uh, it's just something that uh, I enjoy. And it's a lot of fun to be able to go talk to adult students who are in different industries and find out a lot of industries have the same concern that a farmer has. Yep. And I learn as much from them as I hope they learn from me. I've I've thought, you know, we have Washington State University here about oh, 60 miles away. And I've thought, you know, teaching a, you know, a farm tax or a farm accounting slash tax class would be uh, something I might look forward to. I'm not sure if they'd want me to do it, uh, especially since I'm a University of Washington Husky. I might not be allowed on campus, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but uh, you know, that is something in the back of my mind. You know, that might be something worth uh, considering, but uh, that's after I slow down a little bit. I'm not, I'm not quite there at the point where I can, uh, you know, take that on. But uh, now I also know that uh, you are on the board of CoBank. Uh, matter of fact, we had our um, you had your not annual meeting. You had a meeting up in Napa a couple weeks ago where I saw you. I, I'm just curious, how did that come about? What are your duties for, you know, just uh, let people uh, that are listening know what, uh, if you're serving on a board like a co-bank or a farm credit or a bank, uh, what what's involved? Well, so when I was 32 years old, I was asked to run for farm, uh, which what is now Farm Credit West, which is part of the farm credit system. It, it would be similar to your Northwest farm credit up in Washington. And uh, so I, I was elected onto that board and um, did all the various chairs. I, I was uh, audit committee chair for many, many, many years. I was vice chair, I was chairman of the board and um, uh, I, I was on that board for about 22 years. And so I was thinking about, you know, you know, I want to continue on or not. And I was asked, why don't you run for the co-bank board? There's a, a seat going to be open. And um, I said, you know, that, that sounds interesting. So I ran and I was elected and I've been on the co-bank board for six and a half years. And I, I chair their enterprise risk committee. Um, and, and so co-bank is one of the four farm credit banks. There's co-bank, agribank, ag first and the Texas bank. And CoBank has two functions. So it has what's called Title III authority, which they lend money to the co-ops in the United States and rural infrastructure and things like that. Then they also uh, are the conduit to get money out to the uh, their affiliated associations, which Farm Credit West, Northwest are two, for example, uh, right. that they're, they're, they're affiliates. And so there's 18 of us on the board of uh, CoBank, four appointed or outside directors and 14 elected. And uh, we're about, oh gosh, $180, $200 billion in assets. And so we're the largest bank uh, within the farm credit system. And um, given that we have dual authorities, it's, it's a very interesting board to be on. And I'll, I'll be quite frank with you, coming from Southern California, 
you know, we have co-ops down here, uh, Sunkiss being the major example of a co-op, but most of the co-ops in our area have went away 35 years ago. Yeah. Um, uh, we were members of two co-ops, you know, they, they just kind of dissipated as, as vegetable farmers got bigger and bigger. They wanted to market their own products with their own label and not be part of a co-op. So when I got on the co-bank co board, I didn't appreciate how important co-ops are across this country with uh, power, for instance. I, I, my power company, Southern California uh, Edison, I mean, it's just a huge corporation. But when you get out into a lot of rural areas of the country, I didn't realize that the power is provided by a co-op yep. or the, the broadband is provided by a co-op. So that was really eye-opening for me to understand that that uh, not every place in, in the country is like the LA basin, for example. Uh, and so I, I came to appreciate a lot more why uh, having dependable credit into the rural areas of the United States is so important. And CoBank is there to fill that need along with other institutions that are out there. Um, and uh, the farm credit system is out there to fill that their mission is you know uh, uh, rural farmers and infrastructure and and to be able to be as a dependable source of credit through good times and bad so it's really a very interesting look at how the world works out there and i i know that cobank is the headquarters for cobank is in denver and i've been at the office a couple times meeting some people i knew there um, but what is the is there a specific region that CoBank covers, or is it sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of a hopscotch across the U.S.? Uh, it, it's not truly just one specific region, is it? I, I'm just curious on that. Yeah, that's a great question. So the Title III side, the co-op side, we cover the all the United States, every state that has a that can have a co-op can be a borrower from CoBank. On the uh, on the farm credit banking side. Most of it is the Western United States from, say, Colorado West, but we do also have Farm Credit East, which is based out of, uh, um, uh, I believe, Massachusetts or Connecticut um, in that area. So it, it kind of hopscotches around, uh, but the uh, the co-op side is in every state. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, again, I'm a CPA, and and one of the uh, provisions that special provisions that farmers have is if somebody passes away and let's say you have that land there in Ventura County that because of the of the development activity going on it's worth a hundred thousand dollars an acre and I'm just making up a number there but if you valued it based on the rent that you paid you actually look at one of those four banks you know CoBank, AgriFirst, uh, what's the other one Ag and then uh, Texas, and depending on what state you're in, which California would be CoBank, you look at what that interest rate is, and then you take that interest rate, let's say it's 5%, and the rent is $1,000 an acre, that means for your federal estate tax purposes, instead of valuing it $100,000, we now get to value it at 20000 so 20 times 1000 Now, there's a limit. We can only drop it uh, these days by $1.2 million approximately. Now, last year when we had the debate going on in Congress about raising taxes, you know, there was a proposal to jump that all the way up to almost $12 million. So uh, now that didn't happen. Thankfully, well, that would have been nice, but thankfully the bad stuff didn't happen either. So uh, it, it's just, you know, I've always, 
you know, probably for 20 years before I ever attended a co-bank meeting, I knew there was a co-bank just because of, you know, I, because every year they come out with that interest rate. Yeah. So, and I'll give you a little indication about Ventura County. So, um, farmland here sells anywhere from 75 to a hundred thousand an acre and it, it can't be developed where we have all kinds of restrictions for development here. So, I say, I like to say I'm doomed to farm at least until 2050 or my kids <laughs> are anyway. Uh, where you can take and turn farmland into development, which is very few cases, that ground is now touching a million dollars an acre yeah, uh, yeah. for development. And our land rent, it's all over the board. The, the west side of uh, closer to the beach, it's, you know, 4,000, 4,500 an acre per year. And you get to the very west side of the county, and it's probably $1,800 an acre. Uh, then, of course, if you have citrus, I also sit on the board of Limonera, which is a big citrus entity, a publicly held citrus entity. Um, and they're located all over the county as well. Uh, you know, citrus is, is valued a little bit differently because it's a 35-year crop like avocados and things like that. Uh, so it uh, a, lot of, a lot of the folks that were here for decades and decades, some of them have actually quit farming and they just lease out their ground now and they set their you know land up in trusts and things like that um, yep. and we've done that as well you know to tr you try to mitigate all the taxes you can uh you know as they say farmers are land rich money poor and unfortunately <laughs> when somebody dies uh, that those estate taxes can be quite a burden quickly Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, even in the Midwest, uh, you know, you've had rapid appreciation. I mean, there's lots of land in that Iowa, Illinois, that's going over $20,000 an acre now. And, you know, two years ago, it might have been 10. So, uh, you know, it's it's definitely rapid appreciation all over. Now, matter of fact, I'm, I'm getting ready to do a, a call with RFD TV tomorrow morning. Uh, we're taping this on a Wednesday, and I, I every Thursday morning at uh, 9 a.m. Central Time, I do a quick little five-minute uh, call with them. And th what I'm going to talk about is if we get a rapid increase in interest rates, what might happen to farmland values? Now, I'm not saying it will happen, but you know, right now, you know, 30-year mortgage for your house is almost five percent, and you know, six months ago it was under three percent. So that that definitely can have a, a negative impact on, on land values. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And uh, uh, a, a couple of economists that are friends of mine that they, they are full-time economists up at Cal Lutheran, they, uh, they keep close tabs on that, uh, especially with the housing market. And I've, I've been curious in ag, and I, I've never seen any statistics, uh, have farmers leveraged themselves anymore or any less at you know, almost interest rates approaching zero and right now, you know, you have real rates that are negative because inflation's so high. So I, I'm going to be curious to see how, if we have a rapid run up in in interest rates, how does that affect um, the the cash flows, and what does it do to the value of the the real estate? That's going to be interesting to watch over the next year or two. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I hope uh, it's. Uh, and we also do the fact that we do have inflation. You know, that does push up the perception by investors, hey, I want to own land because they're not making any more of it and it's an inflation hedge. So, I mean, you have a little bit of a yin and a yang there and we'll just see how it, it ultimately turns out. Yeah, and that's that's another good point. Ventura County, we have a lot of investor money that has moved in to buy real estate, a uh, couple REITs and people like that that uh, are buying the land and, and if they can get 4% back yeah. uh, you know, on the rent, they're happy. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I think uh, uh, you know there's uh, you know you have those entities like an Acre Trader. I mean, I think that probably right now is the most well known that uh, you know that they'll buy land and then they'll fractionalize it out to investors. And I think one of their um, I think one of the farms, if I remember right, is in Ventura County. I, I just happen to glance at their website every once in a while. I'm not promoting it. I'm just mentioning that, uh, you know, that I happen to take a look at it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's a, a couple other ones here as well that uh, they've been very active. By We had a large farmer, family farm, been here for decades, decide to shut it down a few years ago. And uh, they had a lot of real estate, and and they've slowly been selling it off. And and um, uh, this big read has come in and bought quite a bit of it. And uh, but you know the interesting thing is right now they want four percent based on rent. But if inflation hangs around at six or eight percent, does do their returns want to move up along with it? And, yeah. And given that yeah. you're starting from a high basis of land value, there's only so much rent you can pay on the farm before you know everything starts to go backwards. So. It could it could cause a conundrum here down the road. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, Ed, you know we've uh, getting close to the end of the of the session. I think what we'll do right now is we'll take a quick break for a sponsor message, and we'll come back and finish up. Sounds great, Paul. Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast uh, presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Ed Terry from Ventura County, California. So, you know, you, Ed, right now you have your son and daughter in the operation. Uh, do they have kids that are coming up that are of that age, or is that still a few years down the road? Well, my my son and daughter-in-law just had their first uh, uh, baby here last August, so we've got a, a seven-month-old, uh, gosh, almost eight-month-old, uh, you know, in the bullpen. Hopefully, uh, you know, uh, she uh, <laughs> she is interested, but uh, we, as a the Terry family, never pushes anybody into the industry uh, uh, my dad was very concerned that uh, if you want to farm, great, we'll we'll make it happen for you. But you know, farming's one of those industries where you you have to love it every day. And yep. he had a lot of friends that got pushed into it. He got, I mean, to tell the truth, he was pushed into it after World War II because his father was having a lot of financial problems, and the bank came to him and said, "Hey, you got to come back to the farm to save your your Same. your father." And my dad wanted to go back to college and and uh become a professor and and uh he was kind of forced into going back to the farm and he never wanted that for any of his kids so my brother and i stayed on the farm because we loved it my brother retired a few years ago my brother's actually a ran a, we had a full mas machine shop and my brother was an engineering major from cal poly so he ran our shop for oh forever and then he retired a few years ago moved to northern uh, uh, nevada and um uh, 
so, and my sisters were never involved in the farm. They didn't want to be involved. So it was now it was me and uh, my wife and, and now my kids. Yeah. And so 20 years goes by and maybe there'll be a, that would be the sixth generation, but too soon to know. Too soon to know. And, and uh, you know, gosh, I, I hope, uh, you know, Wade Ventura County is, it's a popular place to live and hopefully we, we can, we can keep doing what we're doing and, and the sixth generation comes along and, and is able to continue on that. But if, 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 if she doesn't, um, you know, so be it thing, you know, life moves on. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, that's, uh, uh, well, and I, you know, my dad was the, his parents, cause my father was uh, 47. When I was born. His father was born in the U S uh, his grandparents had just immigrated from Germany. Uh, so I would have been, I guess, technically the fourth generation to farm, out of college, you know, I became a CPA, but I mean, you know, in the last year I've bought enough land that I guess I call myself a farmer now. Uh, so now, but my boys have already told me, I have four boys, they've already said, dad, once you and mom are gone, we're listing the land right away. So, and, <laughs> and, and that's okay. Now, 10 years goes by, maybe they'll change their mind, but uh, I, I already know that. And I'm fine with that. You know, there's no way I want to ever force them to keep that if they really don't want it. No, I, I agree. And, you know, people, you know, people have to live their own lives. And, and uh, if they don't want to go back to the farm, uh, great, you know, be a success in whatever you want to do, or more importantly, be happy in whatever you want to do. And, and uh, uh, you know, our, we're, I'm unique where my, my son is a fantastic farmer. And, uh, and my daughter does a great job taking care of the labor. So they're both, they're both invested in it. And, uh, but it's up to them, you know, once I retire, whenever that point comes, um, you know, it's up to them to whatever they want to do. And, and I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, um, we're getting close to the end here. There's always two key questions I like to ask of, uh, of the farmers that are on the podcast. The first one is, what keeps you up at night? Is there something that you worry about? Yeah, what keeps me up at night is just the regulatory environment in California. It, it's just such an, ex, it's a beautiful state. I love living here, but it's a very expensive place to do business. It, uh, you know, the, like Washington state, you know, it's the same thing up there. I'm sure Paul, yeah. your state yeah. legislature never meets a law they don't like. And, yep. uh, you know, there's, there's no vetting of how it affects everybody that has to comply with it. So the cost of compliance here is just astronomical. It's very hard to deal with. So the, that that's the one thing that really keeps me up at night is just how do you pay for the cost of compliance? Yep, yep, no, totally agree. And our state, it's about equal with California or getting pretty close. As a matter of fact, I think some of the bad rules that California come up with, uh, they learn from the state of Washington, so. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's, you know, you deal with it, you you work through it, you you be creative enough to to overcome it. But gosh darn, it's just uh, you know, my friends that operate in other states, they they go, well, we don't have to deal with that here. And, and so you know, uh, it, one of the things that it's done too, a lot of the larger growers have just pushed more operations into Mexico, for example. And yep. um, you know, they're they're growing a lot of the same crops that you can grow here. They're growing them down there, and they're doing it very successfully. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the last question I always end with is, uh, what is your definition of success in farming? 
Well, that's a that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I, I guess our definition of success is is one. Uh, are you happy in in what you're doing? Uh, do you, you know? Do you enjoy the work? And hopefully, when you're happy, then um, I, that you're you're able to make a good living at doing it. You know, yeah. as you know, Paul, farming has ups and downs every year, and we've just came through two years of COVID, and and they were very stressful uh, in the fresh fresh vegetable industry. Uh, but over the long haul, have have you were you able to uh, come out a little bit ahead of from where you started? So yeah. you know, I think for us is is happiness in what you're doing, enjoying getting up every morning and going to work, and if the outcome of that is to be successful uh with with uh, uh financially at the end of it that that's that's good that's yeah, that's yeah. that's great i to totally agree well again uh thank you ed for taking time out of your day to to do the podcast with me is there any uh final thoughts you want to leave for the listeners well you know i i encourage everybody that is uh, listening that if you're not already an egg to, or if your kids are considering a career Really think about agriculture. There's a lot of different areas of agriculture, uh, technology that's coming down the, the, the road here in the next decade or so is astronomically interesting. So uh, if you're not in agriculture, uh, think about it. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful industry and it's a, I like to think that what I do is the most important thing uh, in the world, uh, producing food uh, for yep. folks and um, Please give give agriculture a lot of consideration when you're when you're thinking about a career. Well, good. Thank you very much, Ed. And this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Nee for your host, and we're signing off. <laughs>